the jars of clay. Oh, thank you. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We thank God for the word of God.
Well, good morning again to everyone here, and for anybody tuning in online, whether it be our podcast or Facebook Live or videos, we're glad that you're tuning in as we join together in worship and as we celebrate our God. And in this part of our service, we lend our ear to God to hear what God might have to say to us as we worship and praise Him. Uh, We finished our last series right before Memorial Day. And so, for the time being, we're going to be using the Revised Common Lectionary. And one of the passages that came up on the lectionary this week uh, was this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, found it very interesting. Perhaps it's a passage you've heard before, maybe you've never heard it before, uh, but it is a wonderful passage. Paul, this is his second letter to the church in Corinth. So as, as we remember from our, our studies of the Bible, there's this New Testament, and in the, in the New Testament, there's a large portion of it that are made up of the Greek word epistles, which just means letters. In large part, those letters were attributed to the Apostle Paul as he was writing to different churches in different regions. Uh, Corinth was one that knew, we knew had a lot of trouble, and he wrote the first letter, and it was about a year after the first one was penned that he was in Macedonia and he wrote the second one. I believe this was about 56 to 58 AD is what they attribute the time period. And so he is writing on some of the same issues that he previously addressed in his previous letter, but he also ventures into some new territory. While 1 Corinthians called for believers to be unified with each other, there's a lot of great passages about unity in the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians. This second letter, Paul urges the church to be unified with him in his ministry. Why? Well, we have learned that Paul's opponents at the time were undermining his work and claiming that his suffering, because we all know if we've studied Paul at all, we know that he's gone through a great deal of suffering, that his suffering proved that he was not a true apostle. Because in that time period, it was believed, you know, if you had something going wrong with you, obviously it was your sin that had caused it. And so if he's going through suffering, then he's not a true apostle. God hasn't blessed him in this work. And he concludes that his suffering actually highlights his dependence on Christ as it points to Christ's strength and not his own. And he spends a great deal of time in 2 Corinthians discussing that. In chapter 4 that we read today and that we even saw in the video, he discusses the light of the gospel and shows how he takes a very different perspective on his suffering. But before we dig into that, let's return to God in prayer and ask for the Spirit to guide us in our conversation. Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to worship in your name, to gather, to look at your scriptures freely, and discern what it is that you are speaking to us. Because though these are ancient letters and ancient words, they still speak to us today. We are not all that different from the church in Corinth and the people of Paul's day. We are still in need of a Savior. We are still in need of guidance. We are still in need of a word from God. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive and hear your word to us. And, Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise 
remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, Amen. Amen. Sorry, I needed a little liquid Holy Spirit there. I have some questions for you to ponder here at the beginning as we discuss this passage. And so these are rhetorical questions that I'd like for you to consider. Have you ever faced what people call a dark night of the soul? Never been there? Maybe you have a frequent flyer card like me. I feel like I've been there quite a bit. Have you ever been in a season of suffering? Does that ring a bell? A moment of pain? A time of anguish? Ever feel like things will never go your way or happen as you plan them to happen? Ever feel that way? Does your life sometimes feel like chaos? With young children, I feel like our life always feels like chaos. Do you ever feel like all this all happens even when you're doing the right things? Isn't that when it stings the most? Is when you're doing the right things and the suffering comes. And you watch someone who is not doing the right thing and they're just doing peach king, doing wonderful. Maybe sometimes even our suffering comes because we are doing the right things. How are we supposed to wrestle with this pain, suffering, and confusion? What do we do in the chaos? This was a very topic we wrestled with several weeks back when we were looking at the question of why does God allow pain and suffering? Well, there's good news that we had then and we still have now. You're not alone. You have people with you in your suffering. Nothing is something that just you have gone through. There are many others who have gone through pain and suffering. We all experience these moments. And even the Apostle Paul that we celebrate and we talk about in church was no exception to this rule. I mean, this is a guy, ever since that Damascus experience of experiencing Christ, was doing the right thing. I mean, he is the one who spread the gospel, this good news of Jesus, to the non-Jewish people of the world. We are a product of his ministry all these many years later. I would say he was doing some of the right things. I mean, he even challenged Peter on some of their understandings of saying, if we're going to accept these Gentiles, these non-Jewish believers that we're going to have to make some changes and some exception to some of these Jewish rules. And they fought over circumcision and all that. And that's when Paul argues for circumcision of the heart. Paul seemed to be doing a lot of the right things, but yet he faced so many trials, tribulations, pain, suffering. But Paul, in the face of his accusers, who are saying, you see, this is, just, this is just proof that you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. God didn't call you to anything. You're not an apostle. Sure, Jesus appeared to you on a road. I'll believe that when I see it, Paul. You ever have somebody look at your suffering and go, well, obviously it's probably something you did. Or maybe you even feel that way that you, you're in a moment of suffering. You're like, what did I do to upset God? 
God, I thought I was doing the right thing. Why am I experiencing this now? Well, Paul says, we need to stop this. We need to take a different perspective on your suffering. It doesn't answer everything, but you're missing a powerful point because of your limited perspective. We have a limited perspective in our suffering, don't we? You ever feel just tunnel vision? You're in this moment, and it's all you can see. I remember some of the moments are worse with our youngest. Being in the hospital, it was tunnel vision. I couldn't see anything else. All I could see was in the moment with my son and the fear and the anguish I had in that moment, the fear of losing him. I couldn't see anything else. I wasn't in a moment to consider that God may have something to teach us through this. I didn't want to hear any of that. But Paul's saying, look, if we're going to look at our suffering, we need to gain perspective. So what is Paul asking us to focus on? Paul is always quick to reorient our perspective on anything and everything to the cross of Jesus. You read anything that Paul says, he says Jesus a lot. He talks about the cross a lot. He shares this gospel message, this good news message a lot. And he believes that we cannot truly understand anything in our own lives without first looking to Jesus. That's what Paul believes. Seeing Jesus, heeding Jesus, following Jesus, accepting Jesus' great love for us and for the world. So that's exactly what he's talking about in verse 5 that we read earlier. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul starts by saying, now this is, this is my paraphrase, it's not the, the Greek translation of what Paul said. But if Paul were here today, I think he'd be saying, look, it's, it's, it's not even about me or my suffering. I'm not here to boost myself as the rest of the world might be, but I'm here to share about Jesus. I'm just a servant. It's not about me. Being a servant during a time of tribulation may not seem like an exciting proposition, does it? When you're suffering, you don't want to hear, well, you're just a servant, you're just an underling. Who wants to hear that? There's no comfort in that. You want to hear, you have power over your destiny. You can pull yourself out of this. And then we believe that, that somehow we can pull ourselves out of it. No wonder there's such a great market for self-help books. And there is some truth, nuggets of truth, hidden within those. But if we fail to look to Jesus, we miss the help all together. But Paul doesn't end there talking about, I'm a servant. It's not about me, I'm a servant. He goes on in verse 6, doesn't he? For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's argument here is not just ending with him a servant, but he's saying, let's let's take a perspective. Let's step back. Let's take a big perspective because what is he alluding to here? He's alluding all the way back to Genesis. Because what happens in the beginning of Genesis? The beginning of everything, right? Creation. In the beginning, there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. Everything was, as Scripture says, a watery chaos. Then, 
God spoke and brought order out of the chaos. Just with his words, God spoke and brought order out of the chaos. I think C.S. Lewis captures this best when he talks about the creation of Narnia in the world through the Chronicles of Narnia. In his version, it's not just God speaking or Aslan in this, in this, uh, in this world, but they sing it into existence, bringing order out of this chaos. And where there was darkness, suddenly there shone a light. I mean, can you imagine complete darkness? Have you ever been in complete darkness? If you've been caving, you have. You can get down into places where there's absolutely no light whatsoever, and your eyes even play tricks on you. But there is no light. And then when the first person puts their headlamp on, it's almost startling. There was nothing. There was chaos. There was darkness. And God brought light in the midst of darkness. Light's always a powerful symbol, isn't it? Light always is for good, while dark is always for bad. If you survive the challenge of a night, we experience the hope of a light of a new day. If you've ever had to pull an all-nighter for whatever reason, whether you're sick, caring for a child, working in an ER, and then that sunrise comes up, the sun of the horizon, there's just this hope of the warmth of light of, I survived the night, I survived the darkness. Light has power. And Paul wants us to focus on that light, the light that is our eternal hope for all humanity, Jesus Christ. And knowing Jesus makes a difference in how we are to view ourselves and our world. It shifts our perspectives, not just of the world in which we live, but on our own lives and how we interact with this world. Jesus makes a difference in everything, no matter the circumstances, but perhaps especially when we face moments of darkness. In the darkness, we must look to the light. Then Paul shifts gears a little bit as he moves to verse 7. So he kind of helped reorient us, but then he kind of seems to come out of nowhere as he wants to illustrate his perspective on the darkness. Let's take a look at that passage again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Okay, so there's a lot there. Paul brings up clay jars and surpassing power, which does seem a little bit ironic because pottery is not known for its strength, is it? How many of you have ever broken a nice pottery ceramic thing? Oh yeah, absolutely. We have several in our house. Kate loves the ceramic things, the beautiful painted stuff, and it just 
doesn't survive well with kids. Or sometimes even the dishwasher can weaken it, and it just breaks. But yet, Paul is talking about these clay jars, and this surpassing power seems a bit ironic. And then he goes on to list our sufferings, but points that we are not overcome by these sufferings, even when they are present. At first glance, it's not necessarily a warm and fuzzy passage, is it? It talks about all the things we're going to... You'll be crushed, but not destroyed. Persecuted. I mean, who wants that? He finishes by speaking of this constant work of death, even very cheerful there. Since the day you were born, you were dying. And yet, he holds it in tension with this life that is granted us through Jesus. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Let's go back to verse 7. And let's see this image that Paul is painting. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What do clay jars have to do with anything? Well, first, it was not uncommon for people in Paul's day to hide their precious possessions in plain, simple, unassuming clay pots. Not unlike us hiding a house key under a house plant somewhere outside, or maybe inside you have a book that has a carved out special compartment, it just sits on a bookshelf, and it just looks like a simple book. They would hide their possessions in these simple clay clay jars. But what is the treasure that Paul is talking about? Anyone want to venture a guess? You can give your church answer. The gospel. Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the saving knowledge of Jesus that can transform the world. It's a powerful message of hope that brings healing to the sick, hope to the hopeless, love to the unloved, salvation to the lost, comfort to the afflicted, and light to the darkness. Jesus is the great treasure. And as his followers, we carry this hope within us like clay jars. We, on the other hand, to this powerful, saving message, this great treasure, are fragile clay jars. We live in a temporary body prone to dense scrapes and even fractures, as we just learned with Liam breaking his arm. These bodies are temporary, and we learn that life is fragile. Anyone who has lived will tell you that with time only comes more dense scrapes and fractures. We can't help but show our age and our wear, can we? The best creams can't completely hide it. Plastic surgery can only hide it for a time. Everything always fades, and weakens. Life is fragile, so why would God choose to hide this great treasure of hope for the world within such a fragile container? God could use so many other methods. God could descend from heaven and speak it to the world, and in a lot of ways He did. But yet, God chooses 
to hide this treasure within us. But is this great treasure supposed to remain hidden within us? Are we hiding a house key? Money for a rainy day. Something for when we need it. Is it supposed to remain hidden? In reading this passage, I was reminded of a fable that I ran across of the, of the Kintsukori. And I want to read that fable to you. I found, found the words, and it would be better, I think, if I read it to you than if I tried to paraphrase it. So story time, children, as we listen to this wonderful story. Once upon a time in the far, far east, east even of Eden, lived a great emperor in a great palace, gorgeously stocked with the richest of goods. It was early spring in the season of royal visits when kings and princes called on one another and admired each other's choicest possessions, gave wonderful gifts, and enjoyed bountiful banquets. And this year was special because the visitors would see the investiture of his beloved son, King Sikorio, as crown prince of the empire. The emperor was excited this year because he had a new and beautiful bowl to show to his friends, specially made for him by the finest of craftsmen from the finest of materials. Imagine then his horror when going to his cabinet, he discovered that it was broken apart into a hundred pieces. How could it have happened? No one knew what could be done about it before the first visitors arrived. No one could offer any idea, for the time was too short to start again and make another one. The emperor was dismayed, sad that he could not show off his beautiful bowl, but even sadder that something so beautiful should have broken. He retired into his private apartments with only his beloved son to share his sorrow, and they talked long into the night together. Next morning, the emperor woke to the sound of a great commotion. His senior ministers demanded to see him urgently. The cabinet of treasures had now been broken into, and this time the great new golden diadem that had been made for his beloved son, ready for the investiture, was quite simply gone, along with the broken pieces of the broken bowl. But who cared about those now? What is more, the thief had been seen but not recognized since he was covered in dirt and scars with nothing to distinguish him from the thousand of other down-and-outs who hung around the palace for the emperor, to the annoyance of his ministers, refused to turn them out, but shared his food with them. No one knew for sure where the thief had gone, but he had, they thought, run off towards the, prince, the prince's apartments. There the doors were most usually now locked, most unusually now locked, and there was no answer to their knocking, though they could hear sounds inside. Would the emperor give his permission for them to break down the door? They dare not act without it. The emperor was silent for many minutes. On his face, his minister saw sadness, but not anger, lament, but also love. What was going on? Eventually, the emperor spoke. Leave the prince and his apartments alone, if he is ready to rule, he must be allowed to act. He will, his will and my will are as one. The ministers were not 
at all sure just what this meant, but the message was clear. They were to do precisely nothing. So the day passed. The emperor remained in his private apartments. Those of the prince remained locked, though smoke could be seen coming out of the chimney and fire had obviously been lit. And eventually the ministers tired of their waiting and went to bed. The important guests were expected the very next day. Imagine now the surprise in the morning when they went to the treasure cabinet to prepare its items for display and found the precious bowl back in its place, whole again, but glistening with veins of gold where the cracks had been. Its beauty seemed all the greater, and by it the prince's crown, a slim band now, but speaking to its simplicity of a strength and authority all the more striking, because it had given itself away and given glory to another, but was the greater itself for it. The investiture could go ahead. A smile of secret understanding passed between the emperor and the son whose newly scarred hands had shown him worthy to come into the kingdom. Kintsukoro means to repair with gold in Japanese. And is the art of repairing pottery with gold and understanding that the piece is the most more beautiful for having been broken. When the Japanese mend broken objects, they accentuate the damage by filling the cracks with gold. They believe that when something suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. I don't think God gives over this great treasure and unsurpassing hope to unassuming, simple, fragile clay jars to be hidden so that no one would know. I believe it is to show his power and the depth of his love even more. Our dents, scrapes, and fractures are an opportunity to show forth the treasure that is within us. Our past is not hidden, but is shown encased in gold. Can you think of a time God used a moment of trial or tribulation to illustrate his great love and also show it to others. So often our sufferings speak more about us and our God than our victories. Paul is quick to point out that it's not about us or our suffering, but it is about the treasure that is within us. Is the pot really all that important, or is it important for its purpose and the contents it carries? We were built and made for a purpose, and we have been given a great treasure within us, a great hope that the world needs to hear. Will we see past our present suffering to our purpose? Will we share Jesus with the broken vessels that need mending? But there's one more dimension to mention. Why would anyone want to join a faith that promises that you will be beaten up and pushed down because of it? Perhaps the most powerful part of that fable was mentioned right there at the end when they discovered the repaired bowl 
back in the cabinet glistening with veins of gold. And by it, the prince's crown, which had once been much bigger than it was now, slim, but spoke with simplicity and strength, an authority all the more striking because it had given itself away and given glory to another. Jesus is the prince who gave of his own glory to repair the cracks within us. Jesus, fully God, stepped down from heaven, from his glory, to become fully human, one of us, took on flesh to live with us. He taught and showed us how we were meant to live, but knowing that we can't accomplish that feat on our own, bore the punishment due us, not him, and died a gruesome death on the cross. He took upon him all the wrongdoings, all the shortcomings, all the brutal words, all the divisive actions, and paid the price for every single one of them. He conquered death, giving of his own glory, that we might know his glory. But we have this treasure in clay pots. What are you going to do about it?